Okay, good morning church. While you're getting settled in your seats, I'm going to open us up in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, what a privilege and honor and a gift it is to be able to come before you, to join together with brothers, with sisters, with friends, to claim our identity in you, Father, to reposition our trust in who it is that you are, to let go of what has happened in the past week, perhaps what it is that is holding on to us and causing us to feel low, but rather to lift our eyes up, Father, to be able to look to you. It's such a pleasure and such a gift, Father. Thank you that we have the opportunity to sing songs of worship. Thank you that we have an incredible worship team, Father, who practice and put these songs together for us so that we can be edified, so that you can receive all of the glory. Father, thank you so much that we get the opportunity to crack open your holy scriptures. We can try to glean from them and learn from them what it will look like for us to know you in ever-increasing measure, to trust you ever more deeply, and to walk alongside you, Father, in this life. Please, Father, move me aside. Bring your spirit down into this room. May we sense him, may we feel him in our individual hearts, but may we feel him as a collective as well that we may be unified, that we may be edified, Father, and drawn unto you. Lord, we love you so much. We pray all of this in your son's name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. My name is um, Remo Tlale. For those of you who I don't know and I haven't met yet, uh, I have the privilege of serving full-time here on staff with the church, uh, as well as uh, working, or uh, sorry, as well as this morning being able to deliver our sermon for us. And to do so, I want us... Um, to kind of go back to 13-year-old Remo. Now, 13-year-old Remo was uh, tall and scrawny, and he had one real love in his life, and that was football. Some people call it soccer. Those of us who know, we call it football. And on this particular day, I was uh, out to go play again uh, with my club team. We were playing club soccer, and I was, you know, excited, but kind of just, it's another game in the season. We've got to do what we've got to do. And this team in particular on this day, man, they came out guns blazing. One of those games where within minutes, they had already scored their first goal. And we didn't know what was going on. They kept running around us. They were just quick with it. And we were struggling to keep up. At the time, I was playing six. And for those of us who play FIFA, that's CDM. And so I was playing in the hole. And they just kept getting around us. And I couldn't make sense of it. And so before I knew it, again, there was a second goal in. And we were 2-0 down. Man, I was like, okay, it's going to be a long day at the office. But somehow, one of the other players gets a ball into the striker. Our striker turns the defender. Boom! You know, one of those, like, hard shots that the keeper didn't have a chance to save. And it's 2-1, and so we're back in the game. But again, don't picture Champions League football. Picture under 13 football. So back in the game doesn't mean, like, it looked cool like Ronaldo. It just it was a goal, okay? And so we, we continue to fight back but with no avail because just before half time, the opposition scores their third goal. Now for those of us who watch football, we know that once we are 3-1 down at half time, it's kind of a very difficult ask to come back from that score line. And so in our, in our team talk, huddled up with the coach, uh, he had some, a few choice words. And uh, my coach at the time was not a follower of Jesus. And so I won't be able to say the words that he used but he had some things to say. And so he drew us in, and he said, listen, we have to change our tactic. 
What we were used to doing is being fast on the wings and putting the ball in behind, and we couldn't do that anymore because these guys were defending very deep. So he said, let's play one, two, one, two in the middle of the park, move the ball around, put your foot on the ball, and that way we'll get some control into the game. And man alive, did we do it. The first couple of minutes, we looked lightly. We looked like, okay, maybe this team will come back and have a resurgence. And then came the moment. And I'll never forget it, probably until I'm like 90-something years old, if the Lord gives me that many years. But I received the ball in the center circle on my right foot. And there was a defender kind of making his way to cover me. You can tell, I'm living this in my mind. This is, this is, pr this is like my prime. This is like the vintage moment in Remo's football. The ball came... And I looked up to find an option, and somehow in the distance I saw that the goalkeeper was off his line. And in a moment of divine intervention, church, I, I decided I'm going to go for it. So I shifted the ball onto my left foot. I'm right-footed, by the way, but my brother, my older brother was very important. He said to me, always learn how to do a few things on your left foot. It makes you more valuable. So I, sh I shifted to my left foot. This defender was off, off his balance now, and I just went, boom. No laces, literally a toe punt of note. But I knew it was going in the right direction. And it went over the, the guy in front of me, the defender, my striker, and over the goalkeeper, shoo, into the back of the net. Oh, come on. I celebrated like I had just won the Champions League. I ran to the corner flag. I kicked the post. I didn't, I didn't take off my shirt because I knew I couldn't get away with that. But man, I was all in. And there's maybe 12 or 13 parents in the stands who clapped and some of my friends who really liked me were like, dude, what a goal. But it only meant 3-2. But it was a sweet goal. It was a sweet moment. It was one of those moments that would live in my mind and in the hearts of our teams forever. Because at the end of the season, that goal was voted goal of the season for our under 13. And we had three under 13 teams. So it was incredible. And it was one of those moments that, like I said, I will, man, Lunax is going to hear this story. Oh, boy. I feel for him, especially if he chooses to play football. Man alive, I'm going to tell him the story. But what's quite interesting is that uh, the game continued, and we lost the game 9-2. <laughs> uh, so so I, I want to ask you, church, when you think of some of the memories in your life, do you see both joy and sorrow in the memories in your life? I mean, to go from that sweet moment of the goal that maybe brings us back into the game all the way down to a 9-2 loss. To this day, the second half after my goal is a blur to me. And I've recently heard that forgetfulness is a trauma response, and I think that's exactly what happened there. And so today, I want us to talk about this perceived dichotomy in life, that there is good and bad that exist at the same time. Or as um, Susan Cain, the author, puts it, bittersweet. And she defines living in the bittersweet as this. It's a tendency to states of longing, poignancy, and sorrow. An acute awareness of passing time and a curiously piercing joy at the beauty of the world. The idea behind bittersweet is that both life and death exist together, don't they? We know this, both, both light and darkness. They exist in the world, in the realm that we live in, together. We see these moments where something is very sweet, and sometimes it's very bitter. Bittersweet is this amazingly challenging tension that we have to walk through in this life. And you can ask, Bali, I have this tendency. 
the personality uh, typing tool, you know, those ENFJ, all those guys, the word for this is called melancholy. The ability to just sit with some, sometimes what people will perceive as really deep, dark thoughts. And I can sit there for hours on end, contemplating, but God, how does it work that this and this coexist? And the longer that I follow Jesus, and the longer I've been a full-time minister, the more I've seen that I'm not the only one with this. Many of us wrestle with this same tension, don't we? Where we try to figure out how can there be such good and such evil all at the same time. And so you might be asking, why does it matter that we actually discuss this idea of the bittersweet? Why, does it, why is it something that we should even pay attention to? And I think if, if anything, we should because it can turn us into bitter people. It can turn us into cynical people. It can turn us into people who just lapse in their faith. And I know some of you are like, no, but Christianity, we have the good news, Remo. This is supposed to be the positive religion. This is the faith that says all is going to be well, all is going to be good. And I would just say to you, it is going to be. We aren't there yet. There is a part of this life, there is a way that this life works, that as Jesus said about his kingdom, it is here but not yet. And so we have to wrestle these things through. Because consider with me for a moment these two individuals as to what could happen if we don't. There is the, the mature man. This man has been through a lot in his life. He grew up here in South Africa and in his youth did not realize the racial and political issues that were outside of his home. But as he grew up, he came face to face with these issues. As he saw violence upon violence upon violence at the hands of extremists. And then over time, he was able to see reconciliation. He found his, his sweetheart, and they got married, and they had this wonderful honeymoon moments. But in that marriage, they've had very difficult times. He's one of many kids, and so he's been able to see his nieces and nephews grow up, some in very stable homes, where mom and dad are present and loving and kind, and others of them from one-night stands with a single mother or single father fights to keep things together. He's seen cancer diagnoses and he's seen remission. He's seen the highs and the lows of life. He's seen his kids excel in ways he never dreamed possible. But he's also seen them choose lifestyle choices and partners and things in their life that he just cannot wrap his head around. And he's been struck with deep, deep grief over the things of this world as well as joy all at the same time. But because he has not chewed on and worked through and processed the bittersweet, he himself has turned jaded and cynical. And he says things like, God helps those who help themselves. Or perhaps he says, those people will always be like that. Or even worse, he says, all of it is meaningless. Or perhaps the young lady, who isn't even 30 yet, but in her short life, she's witnessed the incredible pain of her parents' divorce due to infidelity. She has lost her little sister at five years old to cancer. She has had her home broken into and cleaned out. She has even been close to someone who has walked through church hurt and trauma. And so when she's asked questions about faith or how she's doing, she says, how can a good God let evil exist in the world? Or perhaps she says, people cannot be trusted because they always let you down. Or even worse, she says, leave me alone. 
I am fine. And yet you can see she's clearly not fine. Now, I just made up these two people, but I'm sure as I read through them, and as I mentioned what they've been through in their lives, maybe pieces of your life have flashed before you. Or perhaps the life of someone you know, love, and care for has flashed before your eyes. And you realize that it's true, that if we don't learn how to chew on the bittersweet, if we don't learn how to navigate it correctly, if we don't know how to be healthy and thriving through it all, man, we can end up in very dark places. You know, for me, the inspiration behind this kind of conversation is that my life has been littered with these moments. I shared a very light-hearted one earlier about football. But you know, in 2006, my father was diagnosed with cancer. I believe it was about February. I remember the, the house we were living in at the time and the family meeting that was called. I remember the awkwardness of my brother's girlfriend wanting to sit in. She was like, no, you're just a girlfriend. Eh? No lobola has been paid, please. Okay, but, but we were like, no, please, hold on. And as my father then would tell us, he was a medical doctor, so he told us first in like medical English, and then he had to, you know, bring it, bring it to our level. But he told us that, man, this is the diagnosis. The prognosis does not look good. They're going to try a couple of things, but he's not sure that it will work. It simply was not a good moment. And I, I remember the, the tangible pain in the room. And I, I remember as we all looked to try and figure out, why is he so peaceful? Why is he... He just seemed to say it so matter-of-factly. My mom is in tears. My sisters are in tears. Tears are welling up in my eyes. But the guy with the problem looks fine. And I was so confused. And he, he would go on to live out the next few months of his life that way. As the cancer got worse and worse, it spread across his lungs, into his throat, on his back. The pain increased. And at some point, of course, they say, man, there's nothing we can do for you. Yet my dad would quote things, and he would say things like, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And he was one of the few people in this life that I've seen say that and mean it, even in the midst of some of the hardest times of his life. At, at the, towards the end of his life, he needed to have his lung drained of liquid every day, excruciating pain. He had to be on a ventilator 24-7. At some point, he could not even speak. And I remember like it was yesterday as my mom called me and said, Reems, I need your help. We need to get dad to the hospital. And we ran into the room. And he looked at us. And he just signed with his hands that he wanted to pray. That was the last thing I did with my father. A couple of, years, a couple of hours later, he would pass on. And these are the kind of quotes he left us with. And I'm like, how does it work, God, that in one moment, the most faithful man I've ever known, can be following you, deeply desiring you, and nothing but you, and you would take his life this way. And it's in those moments that I've had to learn how to lament, how to practice this old, ancient way of prayer and speaking to God and in community so that I can fight off in my own life, my own cynicism, my own spiritual apathy, and my own judgment. See, what I know is that in a room this diverse, whether young or old, we all have come to these moments. We all have experienced moments of severe pain and incredible joy. And what I know about us as modern-day people is we know how to celebrate, don't we? Man, we've created apps just so we can post all the good things that are happening in our lives. We've walked, we, the way we walk and talk is so that we can celebrate. Hey, do you know what happened? It's all the good news. Yet I find we lack a way to compute, to process, and to walk through 
the bitter of life. So, what is lament? Lament is the uniquely Christian way of expressing sorrow, pain, or confusion. It is a form of prayer that expresses all of these things to God and draws us back to Him, not necessarily for answers, but for trust and for hope that He is God. Or as Mark Vickhop, I hope I pronounced his name right, said it in this quote, he says, Lament talks to God about pain, and it has a unique purpose, trust. It is a divinely given invitation to pour out our fears, frustrations, and sorrows for the purpose of helping us to renew our confidence in God. Not our knowledge of the future, not a certainty of what the outcome will be, not a way that I know, okay, God, this I've said it, I've done the right thing, now you're going to act the right way. No, to renew our confidence in him, to place our trust in him. And the amazing thing about this idea of lament is that if you look for lament through the text, through the, the Bible, what you'll find is that scholars say two-thirds of the Psalms are actually lament. Two-thirds. There's a whole book called Lamentations. Not a fan favorite, I know. But it's a whole book of lament of the Israelite people lamenting the destruction of their temple. And I could go on and on the number of prophets who have prayers, Jeremiah, Isaiah, in their times, praying, God, have you forgotten me? What's going on? There is so much lament in the text. Yet I think as modern-day people, in an effort to keep things nice and lively and shiny and above the surface, we don't want to go there. And I think the invitation of God through the text is, no, bring it. Please bring it. So, when we lament, we do not just complain, like we do about ESCOM. I mean, this morning we're already having, you can hear the generator in the background. And we know we talk about ESCOM. That, that's not lament. That's just complaining. And, and I mean, part of lamenting language is certainly complaining. But it is done from an understanding that the one I'm complaining to can actually do something about it. Because what I can tell you is if you tell me about ESCOM's problems, I'm just going to high-five you and say, me too, brother. <laughs> but God can actually change things. See, when I say lament, I'm not talking about putting together words to ask God cleverly for what it is that you want or to be on your side. And I mean, again, that's part of the lament language, and we can certainly express our desires, but I think it's about the raw honesty of what it is that we are processing and what it is to be able to be pushed back into the loving triune God and not into our own future or our own desires. See, lament is faithfulness to him instead of trusting our own feelings. Lament is the beautiful language of faithful people living in a here but not yet world where God's coming kingdom is absolutely present and we feel it and experience it, but so is the ramifications of an incredibly broken world. See, lament is a way for us to sit with God and with others, to hold hands, squeeze each other, and process, digest, chew on, and walk through the bittersweet. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Psalm 13. I'm going to ask you to ask you if you do have one to turn to it. Some of the words will come up on the screen eventually, but I'd love to read it together as one whole. So Psalm chapter 13, I'll read from verse 1. It says this. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? 
How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord, my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has done good to me. It's quite a powerful psalm. It's quite intense that you can see here David, when David is going through some things. And this is considered one of the key lament psalms in the book of Psalms. And so what I thought I would do is try to figure out what is some language or some key components to this idea of lament. And of course, if you read wide, and you can go out and there's a lot of great books. You can come and ask me afterwards. I can recommend some. Uh, lots of incredible writing about the topic. I, I don't want to take away from any of those. But what I found to be most consistent in those answers, as well as what I've experienced in my own life, are four key things. And the thing number one is we have to turn to God. Often, a lament begins by addressing God. Look at this. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? The point is that the person in pain chooses to look to God and talk to him about what it is that is happening in their lives. This decision in itself is super countercultural and certainly counter to my natural instincts. I don't know about you, but when something of pain comes up, when grief or sorrow or confusion enters my life, what I would much rather do is let's just watch another episode. Right? Let me go watch, uh, unfortunately for me at the moment, let me go watch Man United reruns from 2007. You know? let, let me do something, listen to music. Let me do something that doesn't force me to face that I am feeling what I'm feeling and that there's a God who I believe should be bigger than what I'm feeling, but at the moment he doesn't look that way. There is something to be said that running in nature is just part of our sinful nature, isn't it? Perhaps if we think about the Genesis story, we see that they ran away from God as opposed to, to God. And lament is the exact opposite. We turn to God knowing that he knows and sees what we're feeling anyway, so we can be completely honest. The second thing that we do in lament is we bring your complaint. Every lament features some kind of complaint. In this one, David says, how long must I take counsel in my soul? I love the wording. And have sorrow in my heart all day. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? It's clear that somehow David feels like he's losing. And he wants to lay before God, how long must this continue to happen? And so more than a rehearsing of sinful anger towards God, biblical lament is humbly and honestly identifying the issues at hand. It's humbly saying, Lord, this is my pain. Lord, this is my sorrow. And perhaps like David, it comes out as questions. This is what's frustrating me. This is what's breaking me. This is what's causing me sorrow in my soul. Or perhaps it's being more honest about how the external factors of the world are affecting your internal world. 
As opposed to saying, God, fix the political instability, maybe we should say, God, help me to be more secure in you than I am in the stock market. See, this for me can feel incredibly vulnerable. So anytime I've lamented, I usually write it down and I keep it in a book that no one should have access to. And yet what I found is God has access to it. And he's the one I want to have access to it. Because he knows, understands, and can work with my angst. What he cannot work with is when I hide from him. Though he does some things to get me out of hiding. But he, he prefers it when I bring it to him. So we turn to God. Then we bring our complaint. Then we have to ask boldly for help. That's what David says. He says, consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. He says, God, can you maybe do this for me? Could you consider to answer me, O Lord, and lighten up my eyes? You see, not getting rid of or working through the sorrow and asking God for what he can do can create a deadly silence in us. And then we can give in to despair and just say there is no hope. Or we can go into denial and just say everything is fine. But what lament invites us to do, what it draws us in towards, is to dare to hope in God again. Is to dare to look into the face of God and say, I think you can still do something amazing. I think it's possible that you can heal, that you can make, make new, that you can do something different. But we have to be willing to say to him in honest and earnest trust, God, this is what I want. And I would want to repeat, not like a genie in the bottle, who if we rub it correctly and say the right words, he'll come out and do the right thing. No, 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 no. But to be able to say, God, I know that you are able and I trust you. I don't trust the outcome. I trust you. And that's where, that's where lament often leads. And this is why for me, when I first read the Psalms, I didn't see them as lament. I thought, look at how cool David is. He starts off angry and he always comes back to, but in you, oh Lord, I trust. Like, I was like, man, that's not my quiet times when I'm in strife. But I think it's because David chooses to trust. Because as we lift our eyes up, from what it is that we see to the God who can take care of things, we can only choose but trust. He says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. I mean, it's beautiful language. You know, and so more than just the stages of grief that we go through, this type of prayer gives language and moves us somewhere. And I'll be honest, sometimes it's a couple of prayers that move us somewhere. But they move us nonetheless. They move us to being renewed, to being committed again, to trust in him, to an assertiveness that we understand that this world is truly broken, but God, you are still who you are. That as we see the bitter in life, we can trust God that he remains being who it is that he is. And that we know that at some point, the sweetness will exist again, whether in this life or in the life to come. See, to me, this is such a super helpful psalm because it really gets to the big picture of what does lament look like. It encompasses pain, but it shows us trust. It, it goes from this way to that way, expressing what it is that is in his heart. 
And he, you can see he's navigating the tension very tightly. Oh, but God, this is what's going on, but you are this. How do we walk through this? And again, I think he sees it as an opportunity to engage, an opportunity to draw closer, an opportunity to draw into him. See, for the majority of us, our lives day to day are filled with the bittersweet. We see the light and the darkness of the world. We see death and life coexisting. We see the incredible gift, we, sorry, we see the incredible uh, pain of sorrow caused in the world by sin, and we see that which God renews. And so we then have this incredible gift and opportunity to use called lament. So we can choose to re-engage ourselves, to re-trust God, to draw near to Him. You know, for me, there's a lot of things that I lament lately. One of the things that's really striking me is how so many of my friends are deconstructing their faith and making life choices outside of what it is that I believe and what it is I believe we grew up in. So many of them, since 2022, since 2020, I'm sorry, all the way through, I've seen friends leave full-time ministry that I thought, dude, we were going to do this forever together. I've seen guys who said, dude, I believe this with all of my heart, go absolutely antithetical to the scriptures. I just, I struggle to understand, God, why would you let that happen? I struggle to be okay with seeing what it's doing to their lives. The, the anxiety ramps up. I'm not saying Christians don't have anxiety, but man, God helps with that. I see the depression ramp up. I see the, their families shipwrecked. Hearts broken. And I look at them and I think, what are you, dude, what's going on? And instead of just, you know what, it is what it is, you know, the, the narrow is the gate and, you know, only a few of us will make it, which I'm sure is somewhat true. I go back to God and I say, God, make this make sense to me. Make it make sense to me why there's so many church scandals, why there's so many things that people do wrong and you allow them to happen in your church. Shouldn't you be protecting the church? That when people need a place to run to, they come here, not away from here. And I lament because I see that there's bittersweetness because I also have incredible moments with people. And I say, I'm like, dude, this is, like this congregation, beautiful people doing their absolute best, faithfully, holding on to God in times that, honestly, I look at some people's lives, I, I don't know how you do it. And so I go to God and I lament these things. I pour them out. And so I'm going to display here on the screen in a little bit, a couple of psalms that you can take, you can take up <coughs> excuse me, for yourself. And I'm going to ask you to perhaps dig deep. Have a look. Maybe for you, it's actually at the surface. The moment I mentioned lament, you're like, yeah, dude, I know exactly. I need to go do this. And maybe for you, you need to dig a little bit deeper. Perhaps you need to really scratch the surface of your soul to say, what is causing me angst? And I would encourage you, pray through the Psalms. You know, somebody once said, that borrowed words felt deeply are equivalent to our own words uttered mindlessly. Now, so sometimes borrowing from these psalms that David and the, and the like wrote, they can be incredibly helpful. They can really draw us into sharing stuff about ourselves that maybe we didn't even know was there in the beginning. And I want to ask you, process your life. Church, what is at stake is our ability to trust God. And not to trust him superficially, but to trust him with the inmost being that we have. Above and beyond the politics, above and beyond the raising of the kids, above and beyond the job stability, above and beyond the grades, there's an opportunity to know God intimately. And to know him at our most vulnerable, which allows him to be his most vulnerable. 
So I want to ask you, I want to encourage you, I want to invite you, challenge you, whatever the healthy word for you is there. I want to say to you, church, let's be a church who go back and remember what thousands of people have done for thousands of years in lament and practice it in our own lives. Amen. Thank you.